Well, hi, I'm Robert Tursik, and I'm part of the team that created COVID Smart, the workplace training program for COVID-19. COVID Smart teaches workers the best practices to prevent infection in the workplace and at home and in the community. And today I'm joined by a very special guest. My guest today is one of the people who, who helped us create this program in the first place, and she is a nationally recognized expert epidemiologist working at the very front lines of bringing people back safely. And so please welcome Dr. Terry Rebman. Hi, thank you for joining us today. This is our COVID Smart video and podcast. Um, I want to introduce you a little bit here so I can brag about you. Um, Dr. Rebman is, is a professor of epidemiology and of biostatistics at St. Louis University, uh, where she also is the director of the Biosecurity Institute. And you recently just got a new appointment to another position during this crisis. That's correct. So I have a new temporary role as a special assistant to the president, meeting the president of my university, Dr. Pastello, to um, the primary aim of this temporary role is to help my university um, reopen and stay open safely during the pandemic. Well, what are some of the things that you have to deal, deal with uh, in that role? That must have been quite a shock to have to get that responsibility thrust on you so quickly. Um, yes and no. So in some ways, I mean, I've been preparing for this my entire career. I'm in one of those strange fields that you study that you hope you will never actually need to use. But then, you know, when when the pandemic hits, then there you are ready to go. Um, so it, it's it's been it's been good from a professional standpoint to be able to use my my skills and my knowledge. But of course, obviously, a very tragic situation. And I would prefer if the pandemic would just end tomorrow. For sure, we understand that. But I'm imagining that you worked with a group or a committee that had to devise some policies for how to bring students back to campus safely and, and protect the workers as well, the other people who are on campus. When did you start doing that planning? How early did you begin planning to bring people back for the fall semester? So the pandemic response actually started in the spring when before we brought students back to campus, we first had to make the decision to close campus in the spring, as most as almost all universities did when we switched to online when the pandemic first hit the U.S. Almost immediately after we closed the not closed the university, we we switched to online education. Yeah. The university has has stayed open to a certain extent the entire time. Just like time. businesses that are sending people home to work from home. Exactly. So most of our employees are still teleworking right. at this point. And even our faculty, for instance, only come to campus when they need to teach a class face-to-face -face, or if they're in research, if they have to be in their research lab or be on campus for some other, re um, some other reason. But in general, we have really tried to de-densify our campus, just as we recommend that businesses um, de-densify during the pandemic. So we limit the number of people who are in um, spaces together. How does that work with like a dormitory or a dining room? So we de-densified our on-campus housing. We worked with our local public health officials um, to decide exactly how many students we could safely keep in our on-campus housing for this fall. So we literally went from dorm room to dorm room from space to space and said, yes, two students can stay in this space and no, um, we can't have three students in this space, for instance, and made those decisions based on um, the size of the room, approximately size, but also communal bathrooms. And there were many other factors that we that we examined. And we hear now about um, the need to keep a window open or to make sure there's plenty of ventilation if you're indoors. Is that also part of your calculus? 
So the exact role of a good HVAC system hasn't been established well yet. So what epidemiology information or data is telling us so far is that in situations where you have a small enclosed space that has poor ventilation, that can contribute to disease spread. But in general, the benefit of opening windows or increasing HVAC in a space, we, we just don't have great information about exactly how much of a benefit that will provide. I see. And, um, and, and then before the students returned, was there some effort to educate or communicate to them? Was, was there, you know, did the, I guess the process of bringing people back probably started before people showed up on campus? Yeah, so we started months before we reopened for this fall. Mm -hmm. So we started back in spring. Um, We used a multidisciplinary approach where we had a group of administrators, faculty, staff, and student representatives to look at this from multiple perspectives to develop the most comprehensive plan to be able to open and stay open as safely as possible. So for instance, some of the interventions that we put into our plan, and, and our plan is completely Um, available open to the public. So if you went to the St. Louis University website, you could see our entire pandemic plan. It's all on the web. Um, But we did things such as de-densifying our on-campus dorms. We implemented social distancing like in the classroom and on campus. So we spread the desks apart inside the classroom so they are six feet apart. We have a mandatory mask policy for everyone on campus um, at all times unless you're in your dorm um, with your roommate with the door closed, or if you work in an office and you can keep your door closed and you're the only person in that office, Mm. then you can take your mask off. But otherwise there's a mandatory mask policy everywhere on campus. Um, We have, we increased hand hygiene, education and compliance, increased our cleaning and disinfection protocols, implemented daily health screenings, symptomatic and asymptomatic testing, and we implemented our own contact tracing program. So and that's not the full comprehensive list. I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but um, just to let you know, like w- there are many different components to having a, a comprehensive plan to reopen during a pandemic. And we we implemented all of those interventions and more. Well, that's really quite useful, I think, for uh, folks who are watching this, particularly if they're um, a business manager or a human resources manager who's responsible for crafting a plan to bring people back to the workplace they might find it quite instructive to learn a lesson from a U.S. university because you've been through that. They, they can learn from your learning curve. How has it gone so far? Would you say it's been successful? We, well, I don't want to jinx myself, okay, fine. <laughs> but we right. have actually, so St. Louis University has been extremely fortunate. Um, as you may have seen on the news, many universities have been less fortunate and had outbreaks on campus and just large numbers of infected students. We have not seen that so far on our campus. Our positivity rates are very low. Um, we're just not seeing massive disease transmission. We're seeing it among you know roommates and romantic partners. And of course, well, one of the reasons why that might be working so well is that you've got this sort of um, extra layer uh, in your program, which is the the kind of social element where you've enlisted student volunteers to serve as kind of ambassadors. Uh, to spread the, you know, remind people uh, about the best practices and reward people who are following the best practices. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that program. Sure. So it's called our Public Health Ambassadors Program. It's the only one of its kind in the United States. And it consists of a group of student volunteers, um, primarily public health students, but it's also multidisciplinary. And those students 
there are two components to the program. One piece is that they conduct campus audits. So they make sure that the hand hygiene stations are full, that there are disinfection supplies in all the classrooms and the shared spaces. And then the other major piece is that they do, it's, it's peer education. Mm-hmm. So as they're doing the campus audits, if they see a group of students studying together in the library, for instance, and they're sitting too close together and somebody isn't, or they're all not wearing masks, then the public health ambassador will politely nudge or <laughs> intervene and say, you know, would you please spread out and would you please put your mask back on? That's a very powerful technique, I think, because one of the things we've seen very clearly here in the U.S., not necessarily at college campuses, but elsewhere in the United States, uh, we've seen this stubbornly independent streak come out. It's part of the American culture. It's part of the American ethos. But in this situation, it doesn't really serve us very well, uh, this, sub, this stubborn independence, because um, it's a you know, kind of a defiance against authority, uh, you know, a, a, a resistance against any kind of rules. And um while that serves Americans in many ways, uh, when it comes to a public health crisis, sometimes it's better to just go along with the plan and comply. And, um, and so what I think I can deduce from that is a top-down approach isn't always going to be the most successful approach when it comes to social engineering, when it comes to convincing people, persuading people to do something in their best interest. Sometimes a little bit of peer pressure or encouragement from peers, uh, that kind of social reinforcement can be very effective. And I think that might be one of the reasons why your program has been relatively successful so far. I like to think so. I mean, we we take a, a multi-pronged approach yeah. to our education on campus. So for instance, we had um, a fairly large substantial education program before we allowed students to come back on campus. So it was mandatory for students to watch a training video about COVID-19 and what the campus safeguards were going to be and what campus life was going to be like before they showed up on campus. So they didn't come expecting to see the campus they saw in fall of 2019. It's just a different campus during a pandemic. That's really smart. Um, That's like you're orienting them to a new workplace, if you will, a new situation before they arrive. Because of course, once they arrive, it's too late. That's, That's not the right time to be training people. You should be getting that information to them before they show up. But we do, they do continuing education as well. So we are constantly trying to reinforce those same messages. So we send a lot of communications out that remind people. For instance, one of our latest communications said um, here in St. Louis, it, it's, it's fall and our temperatures are just starting to drop. Yeah. So we were reminding people, okay, it's getting cooler. We're going to be moving indoors. So as you move indoors, don't forget that it's there's a higher risk of disease transmission inside. So remember to keep your mask on, stay six feet away from other people and wash your hands. And so we're, again, just reinforcing that message over and over in different ways. You can't do it too much, really, because people forget. Uh, We all slip, right? We get complacent. And so for those who are watching who are in a business role, a responsibility as a manager, and you have some responsibility for bringing people back to your own workplace, some of what Terry is sharing could be quite useful as a checklist. Uh, the many of the, the practices that they've set forth, the advanced planning, the multidisciplinary approach, the idea that you constantly are training people and reminding them to keep that information present, front of mind. And then the idea of enlisting some volunteers from the group itself uh, to serve as kind of ambassadors, uh, to remind people about the best practices and gently get those people who are slipping, the people who are neglectful, uh, to get them back on track, uh, not in a way that chastises them or names and blames them, but in more of an encouraging way. This is all for our community to keep us all protected. 
So that could be quite useful takeaway for some of the folks who are watching. Now, training is important uh, for the folks who've been working on the COVID Smart program. And of course, you contributed to that program. Uh, we feel that training is the most cost effective thing that you can do because it's like the best prevention is to teach people how to prevent getting the disease at all. And as we all know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Uh, in this case, a pound of cure means an intervention where you have to shut something down and decontaminate a space and quarantine people. And those can be quite costly interventions. So uh, training in advance is a, is a powerful thing to do. Now, um, you contributed to COVID Smart Training as a member of the COVID-19 Task Force at APIC. And so we should take a second to mention that in addition to the many other hats that you wear, you're also a member of APIC and you're part of that COVID-19 Task Force there. APIC, for those who aren't familiar, that is the world's largest group of professional epidemiologists in the world, some 16,000 strong. They're widely represented across the United States in clinics and hospitals, and they are working epidemiologists. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience at APIC and your role on that COVID-19 task force at APIC? Sure. So I've been a member of APIC for 25 plus years, as long as I have worked in healthcare epidemiology, because um, I am certified in infection prevention and healthcare epidemiology. And that's the but primary my role focus on... for APIC, right? That's a big priority, infection control. Yes, that's it's the organization for infection preventionists mm -hmm. at, at the national basis, at the national level. And what is it the COVID-19 task force focused on? So it's a group of individuals who are APIC members mm -hmm. who have expertise and knowledge related to um, pandemics and emerging infectious diseases and or emergency management. And so all of us have been working in the field for a number of years and are helping APIC to develop some educational materials for our members and for the general public. And we also work very closely with the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in helping to inform some of their policies and procedures related to COVID-19, specifically as it relates to infection prevention. Now, this is a time when those folks, uh, the people at APIC, the professional epidemiologists, and especially those who are focused on infection control, are in great demand right now, not just in the United States, but around the world. As we record this, uh, the United States is experiencing the beginning of that dreaded second wave. The number of new infections is increasing every single day. Just last week, a few days ago, uh, the U.S. had 70,000 new cases in a single day, and we're currently averaging over 50,000 new cases a day uh, for the past week or so, and it continues to rise. It's not just happening in the United States. This is also taking place in Europe and in many other countries. So. Uh, places that seem to have gotten this uh, this outbreak under control and maybe were relaxing their grip a little bit. Now they're finding with the cold weather coming, people are going back indoors and maybe they're also letting their guard down and socializing a little bit too much. And we're starting to see the numbers increase all over Western Europe, some parts of Eastern Europe, and some of the numbers are getting uh, quite disconcerting. They're quite concerning. Now, uh, Dr. Redman, tell me about the United States, if you will. Um, in the U.S., we never really got this disease under control. We had the big outbreak on the East Coast and the West Coast in March and April, and it really took until July to bring those numbers down. Um, and then we had another uh, outbreak that began in the South and in the Southwest. And now we're starting to see the mountain states and some of the Midwestern states experience severe outbreaks. So it's sort of been a rolling wave through the United States. And unfortunately, that means it can always come back to a place like New York or California. Um, and so tell me a little bit about what we're doing in the U.S. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? 
So a lot of the interventions that the U.S. has put into place are, are the right kinds of interventions. We are doing surveillance testing. We are testing symptomatic individuals. We're doing contact tracing. We're promoting social distancing and mask use, hand hygiene, cleaning and disinfection, and the other interventions that we know um, de-densifying our um, public areas, such as um, decreasing the capacity within bars and restaurants and some other um, social areas. Those are the right kinds of interventions. But we don't seem to have done them consistently, or maybe we've done them haphazardly, or maybe people haven't complied. Um, but at any rate, it's not working. Normally, these things would work if they were strictly applied and everybody did them uniformly. We would see the numbers taper off right away. Yeah. So if we saw, so for instance, with mask use mm-hmm. in, in the public, there's a modeling study that said that if 80% of individuals consistently wore a mask whenever they were in, in public spaces, that the pandemic would be greatly reduced within a matter of about three weeks. But we're not seeing that in the United States, primarily because we don't have sufficient numbers of individuals who are consistently correctly wearing their mask when they need to. And so because we're not doing that, it's allowing the disease to spread at a very wide uh, very widespread at a very rapid pace. It's a this is a very contagious virus, mm-hmm. and it's more challenging than some other diseases with which we have had uh, um, exposure, so to speak, no pun intended, um, in the past because there's such a large number of individuals who are asymptomatic and right. able to spread disease. Right. So you can't just rely on with other diseases with many infectious diseases. You can. When you see somebody that has symptoms, you know that individual is sick, and then you know that we can. We know we need to put those individuals into isolation and keep them away from other people. When there are asymptomatic individuals, it's just much more challenging to control. Yeah, it's an insidious disease in that respect because um, all the all the measures to uh, track and trace and identify and detect the disease, in some cases, they come too late because someone could be asymptomatic for a week or two and be spreading. They could be shedding viruses uh, at that time, unbeknownst to them. They might have no symptoms whatsoever, but they may be shedding viruses. That's a very difficult thing to detect. If you're doing temperature scans, for instance, at the entrance, you wouldn't detect it necessarily. Um, and that's why prevention in the form of training and masks is so important because you, if everyone adopts the preventive measures, then we won't be sharing the disease, won't be spreading it as much. Um, so I understand the point you're making there. I think in the United States, it's pretty clear that uh, the fact that each state pursued its own kind of set of regulations and didn't do them in a synchronized fashion meant that uh, the disease could spread from state to state. And, and some folks are actually saying that some states now are like a reservoir uh, where the disease will kind of cultivate there, take root there, and then it'll spread back into some of the neighboring states. Do you see that happening as well? That is. Definitely is a potential threat. Yeah, it's a real concern, of happening. Uh, especially in the cold because... weather. And I know they take that very seriously in New York uh, right now because they're worried about another wave coming just as the cold weather sets in. Um, well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about uh, the institute that you manage, just because it's such an intriguing name. So uh, tell us a little bit about biosecurity, the origins of that group, and some of the things you're concerned with there. Sure. So the Institute for Biosecurity started at St. Louis University in the year 2000. It started as one of the original Centers for Public Health Preparedness that were that was funded by the CDC. The original intent was to educate public health professionals about bioterrorism, and bioterrorism is the intentional use of an infectious disease to harm or kill other people. 
But we quickly realized in studying bioterrorism that, of course, bioterrorism is a threat. And we had the anthrax attacks, for yeah. instance, in 2001. Um, but more than that, the, the bigger threat is that of a naturally occurring outbreak of an emerging infectious disease, especially one that could develop into a pandemic. And we've had a number of those over the past 20 plus years. We've had H1N1, SARS-CoV-1, MERS coronavirus, Zika, mm. Ebola crisis in 2014 to 2016. And so the purpose of the Institute for Biosecurity is now we've really expanded our focus and we do formal um, educational programs. So we have master's programs and graduate programs um, to help train individuals to become biosecurity experts to help do planning and training specific to bioterrorism, emerging infectious diseases, and pandemics. A fascinating topic and incredible benefit for the St. Louis University that they happen to have this institute there. Uh, it looks like great foresight. And I guess you could say, in a way, it is foresight because experts like yourself have been warning us that the possibility of a pandemic is a very real thing that we should take seriously. And unfortunately, the way things work typically with public health spending is that it waxes and wanes. When there's a problem, we pour in the spending and it's front of mind. Everybody cares a lot about it. And then they want results right now. Um, and then, of course, after the crisis passes, then we cut the funding and it becomes you know, kind of the back burner. And then it's not something that most people are focused on. Um, and unfortunately, that doesn't serve us so well, that, that kind of lack of attention. It's another kind of complacency, I suppose. Uh, so we're starting to see some of our just our, our laziness and inattention to these matters is what is really causing us some harm. Um, but on the other hand, great that there was uh, such a facility in place at St. Louis University. I'm sure it gave you the ability to organize more, more quickly and organize a response that was more effective. I'd like to think so. Well, that's a it's a it's an inspiring story. I'm very happy to have your time and your contributions today. Thank you for sharing with us. My guest has been Dr. Terry Redman of St. Louis University, where she's a professor of epidemiology and um, bio. Uh, is it bioinformation or biostatistics that you're teaching? Uh, well, our department is epidemiology and biostatistics. Uh, statistics, okay. And of course, the director of the Biosecurity Institute at St. Louis University. Thank you very much for joining me today. And folks, thanks for checking out our podcast here for COVID Smart. Thanks for having me.